Hey, this is Richard Morris. I'm a racing driver and you're listening to Level Playing Field Podcast. Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of Level Playing Field. Level Playing Field is my podcast. My name is Randy Boos, where I interview LGBT athletes and sports personalities. Before I get to this week's episode, I want to go over one quick thing. Um, next week, there are some changes coming to my podcast. I cannot say what it is now, but on Monday, you will find out. If for any reason you cannot find next week's episode in your in your podcast app, go to my social media, Twitter, Instagram, search LPF Pod, and you will see... Uh, where you can find the latest episode. This week's episode, though, is with British auto racer Richard Morris. I started talking to Richard back in May about coming on my podcast, and because of the way I did my seasons and his schedule, it just worked out where we finally spoke about a week and a half ago. This episode covers our talk where we talk about his fencing, his education at Cambridge, his auto racing experience, and a big organization that he helped co-found called Racing Pride UK. If you want to um, find out more about Racing Pride UK, look at the show notes and I will have links to them. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to British auto racer Richard Morris. Richard, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. <laughs> so we started talking probably about four months ago about you coming yeah. on. Yeah, it's yeah, been that's a while. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and since then, you've started an organization for LGBT racers, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. To start out with, though, I want to go over. I want to find out a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up. Uh, in a town called Solihull, which is near Birmingham in England. Um, and I, yeah, had most of my childhood sort of in that region. I went to school uh, in a lovely medieval town called Warwick that's in quite sort of rural location. But uh, yeah, lovely place to grow up, quite near uh, Stratford-on-Avon, where uh, which was uh, Shakespeare's birthplace. <laughs> nice. What was it like growing up for you? Um, well, you know, on the whole, it was pretty good. I'm, you know, not going to say that I was from sort of a, a particularly difficult uh, background. But uh, yeah, I, um, as I say, I went to school in Warwick. I did lots of sports, different sports. So uh, as well as the racing, which I started uh, when I was about 12, 12 years old. So I came to it relatively late. Um, before that, I'd started uh, doing fencing as well. The uh, Olympic sport of fencing, which is basically sword fighting, but with rules. <laughs> <laughs> and protection, right? So there's no blood. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I've had a few cuts from it, but no serious blood. <laughs> is is the blade sharp? or? Uh, no, so the blades, um, you score by like setting off an electric scoring box. So instead of a sharp point, they have a... Uh, like rounded tip that it um, presses in when you hit someone and it registers on the scoring equipment. So they're not sharp, but obviously they are made of metal. So um, when you've been fighting them with them for a while, 
you get little cuts along the edges of the blade that you know <laughs> that's where you can occasionally get a little bit of blood if someone catches you with a bit that's a bit rough but it's you know i mean that never happens <laughs> yeah when did you start that so i started that a bit younger when i was about eight years old um and i uh, wanted to do it at school the uh, senior school where I was so for older kids had a fencing club but um, at that time I was in the junior school and they didn't have one in that and I spoke to the guy who taught the senior school one and he said oh sorry you're too young to do it with us but he pointed me to this club in Birmingham um, and I started there and uh, yeah I loved it and um, <laughs> sort of you know worked hard at it and improved and uh, I carried on doing that um, competitively uh, through to about the end of the 2016-2017 season, um, which is when I decided my racing was getting really serious and had achieved what I wanted to in fencing because I'd represented England and Great Britain internationally and um, I won three uh, significant titles with the England senior team. The, um, it's a tournament called the Five Nations Tournament. Um, and we won that a few times. So I decided I'd basically done what I wanted to do with fencing. And my racing was taking off. So I kind of switched my focus a bit more to doing that. What attracts an eight-year-old boy to start fencing? I mean, <laughs> it's not one of the top sports, you know, in England. Yeah. But uh... <laughs> yeah. So how does that how does that come about? Well, I think it was basically watching too many films that featured medieval knights um, <laughs> and uh, thinking, you know, how do I uh, how do I become a knight? Uh, I had two obsessions growing up. One was with speed. <laughs> so I wanted to go as fast as I could go. And I also had an obsession with being, you know, some cool, kind of cool knight figure. And so that's how uh, the fencing started. <laughs> that is crazy. So you started fencing at eight. You said you started auto racing at 12. And I take it you did the typical go-karting start? Yeah. So my first time in a go-kart was uh, quite similar to like how lots of people have their first time in a go-kart. It was uh, just a kind of, you know, there are these places that you can just turn up, pay your money and, and drive a, you know, fairly basic cart. Goes at like 40 miles an hour. Essentially got a lawnmower engine in it. But, um, yeah. I went there with uh, one of my mates for, uh, it was his birthday party. And uh, he was really quite into this. And he went to this track sort of every other week to go with his dad and try and like improve his times and things. But I'd always watched lots of racing on TV. So I was really quite keen for this. And, uh, yeah, we went along with a little bit of practice and then we had a fastest lap shootout to decide the winner because we weren't old enough for them to let us like race properly. So, uh, yeah, I went and did that and I had a great time <laughs> and, uh, I was pretty, uh, aggressive with it and pretty serious with it from the start. And, uh, when it came to do our timed one lap, um, I actually got the fastest lap. Um, and <laughs> that was a great start to things. Part of how I got the fastest lap, though, was the start finish line was really close to the first corner. And it's a track that had barriers all the way around. But I basically figured out in my 12 year old brain that if I went flat out over the start finish line instead of breaking for the first corner, then sure, I was going to crash. But I would crash after <laughs> I'd done my lap time. And that is exactly what I did. I said 
fastest lap and then I stacked it into the next barrier <laughs> um, wow. and won the contest. So, you know, <laughs> that kind of... <laughs> but yeah, that and was you... the kind of competitive spirit. So I think it's really... <laughs> You didn't get injured at all with your first crash? No, no, not at all. Um, I mean, like, this thing was set up to be, you know, really safe for people who were just going and trying it for a laugh. But, um, but yeah, so that was my first time. And then the guy who owned the track um, sort of said to me as we're packing up, like, oh, you've done this a fair bit before then. And I was like, well, no, this is my first time. And he said, oh, you're actually, you know, you should come back and try it some more. So uh, I did a few times. I just... <laughs> going along, my dad taking me on a sort of weekend afternoon and just doing laps and trying to improve my times without crashing <laughs> and uh, being consistently fast and stuff. And um, and it kind of grew from there. That was just a simple kind of indoor track. Um, and I graduated then to, you know, a little bit down the line, a few months down the line, I tried indoor track with slightly faster carts. And then when I was 14, um, my dad kind of saw, oh, well, you are actually getting faster at this you're doing quite well um you know you've clearly got a bit of a knack for this so we tried um getting sort of a proper art one that uh dad bought for me and uh you go to larger tracks and compete in sort of organized clubs on a regular basis and yeah that was how i started doing that and uh one thing led to another i was competing in the british championship another year later um and so it just kind of got more serious and um these were now sort of um still direct drive carts so no gears on them or anything but um getting more seriously quick so doing like um 70 something miles an hour um and with less protection around you um because the yeah. carts are designed to be as lightweight as possible and yeah so i graduated through doing a couple of classes like that um and then uh i ended up in karting doing uh, a type of car I really loved. They're called uh, uh, 250 gearbox super carts. I think in America they're called shifter carts. Mm -hmm. um, and they are awesome. They have um, five gears. They do 0 to 60 in under three seconds. And uh, they have top speed of about 115 miles an hour. Um, nice. And when you're an inch off the ground and you have no bodywork around you, of any like meaningful thing you have like a bit of fiberglass but basically it's just the chassis tubes it really does feel quick going at that speed then and um, close so to the ground too yeah yeah you're literally sitting so low because um there's no suspension on these or anything so and they've got little cart tires and the chassis is just as low as you can get it um so they grip incredibly but yeah i did that for five years and had quite a bit of success at it um i was uh, consistently in the top three in the British Championship. And uh, that was uh, sort of where I left with kart racing. And then, um, as I say, in so 27... Wait. Go on, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, not interrupt. Yeah. But so you said that you grew up liking racing. Was it something that you you and your dad watched together? Or was this something yeah. that you... Yeah, so uh, my dad uh, had always been like a fan of watching uh, the Formula One on TV and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So... Um, even when I was quite a young child, uh, we all used to watch the Formula One together over like Sunday lunch. Um, and <laughs> one of my early heroes was uh, Michael Schumacher. But it wasn't so of much course. because of his success initially, although obviously it ended up being about, you know, how incredibly ruthlessly competitive he was, how consistent he was. Um, but initially it was because he drove a multicolored car back when he had the Benetton. 
and they just always oh, yeah. my eye as a little kid. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, I used to sit on the carpet watching this car go around. And uh, yeah, I guess I got hooked. <laughs> so was Michael then one of your earlier like heroes in a way? In auto yeah, racing? definitely. Definitely. Uh, and I was just in awe of how he could turn up like every weekend and be so fast um and just you know always on top and uh yeah it's that consistency and, and stuff that was just so impressive about him yeah and you know his style i mean not only is a great race car driver but he was also helping design the car and putting his two cents in to help him go faster yeah so he I mean, really had the brain kind of, for it yeah as you go further through uh racing and when i got into cars and stuff but even when i was racing the shifter cart um it becomes really important that the driver's giving good feedback and telling the team what you want the car to do um, uh, in order to go faster. So, yeah, that was obviously a skill he had and that uh, every driver has to kind of work on. So you're fencing, you're auto racing, and then let's talk about sexuality. How, as a teenager in England, um, doing these type of sports, how was sexuality playing a part in your life? Did you come well, to terms earlier with your sexuality? Uh, yes and no. Um, I mean, earlier than some, but um, yeah. So, I mean, I came out eventually relatively late in school. I mean, just before I left school when I was uh, 18 um, and I only had a couple of months to go. So I kind of figured it doesn't really matter if, uh, you know, what people think about this. But uh, I don't think, I think you done. know what, though, it's funny you say late, because I think for most that would still be considered early. Yeah, well, I mean, what kind of inspired me to do it was I, my best friend um, had told me like the previous uh, year that, uh, well, he said he was bisexual. I'm not sure if I believe in that still. I think he was gay. But anyway, <laughs> he, he, uh, he told me he was bi, but he said it in such a kind of confident, assertive way. And he was a year younger than me. So at the time he was 16 um, and I just found it like really inspiring how he was just like, yeah, I don't care what people think about this. So that kind of gave me the courage to <laughs> to do it. But yeah, I wasn't kind of out in sports uh, at all uh, at that age, um, other than obviously people in my school fencing club knew when I told people at school. But that was so late on um, in terms of my school career. Um, and in motorsport, I didn't actually like come out um or like tell anyone broadly until the end of last year until uh november uh 2018 um and there were lots of reasons for that um about you know worrying about how people would receive it uh worrying that you know <laughs> teams and people around the paddock might think you're going to be less aggressive for some reason or you might become less attractive to sponsors or things like that so that really is why i kind of delayed it in motorsport uh and because the image of motorsport uh, has been, you know, it's been publicized around these images of uh, glamorous drivers with glamorous girls, you know, the kind of ultra macho ladies man racing driver. Um, and obviously great girls everywhere, all that kind of thing. So I just didn't think it was kind of a sport that would be <laughs> too accepting towards me. And so I eventually decided to come out within motorsport when I um, got the drive I have now. I'm now a works driver so i race for a for a manufacturer called uh, spire sports cars um and it was after i tested with them and they'd offered me the contract to drive for them this year i thought well now i'm in a place where you know i think 
firstly, if I come out like I'm established enough that it's not going to affect me too badly in terms of this drive. Um, but also I had great faith in that team around me thinking like, you know, these people will get on board with it. Um, they just filled me with confidence as people. So, yeah, in terms of the fencing, actually, um, I did come out earlier. Um, that was partly because I, I mean, I'd had so much success in the fencing and I was, um, I mean, when I say so much success, I was uh, British senior number eight. So I was you know, one of the top fencers. And I just thought, again, like, I'm established enough that, <laughs> you know, it's not going to have too big a effect. And I must say, actually, um, in fencing especially, it was never an issue at all. Um, past school age, I mean, you know, when you're a teenage boy, um, obviously people are going to tell jokes about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But um, university age onwards, uh, the fencing's been absolutely fantastic uh, in terms of how people have received it. Yeah, and then with, with racing, as I say, I came out really much later. And that was partly because of always worries. And it was partly because, um, you know, I did face a little bit of discrimination in my sport um, or, you know, bits of homophobia. Um, most did of you it, ever experiment? Did you ever experience any of the homophobia in fencing, though? Or it was all fine? No. So, like, in fencing, I can't remember a single incident where anyone, like, was deliberately homophobic towards me. You know, lots of kind of, you know, people making inaccurate assumptions when I'm like, hanging out with a girl at the competition and stuff like that. But, you know, nothing where anyone sort of directly challenged me or, you know, was, was kind of nasty about it in any way. So, you know, I've got to say that was really good, although it was still a bit of a, a, a you know I worried about it before telling people because I didn't know anyone else in the fence community who was gay and, and that sort of thing so there's always that kind of step to overcome um, how yeah. did coming out to your your family go <laughs> I think kind of uh, quite a common thing it was a multi-stage kind of process um, I mean I didn't come out to my family till later than I did at school so my friends knew beforehand um, and uh, again, when I went to university, like some people knew before others, but I uh, met my current partner uh, in my first year at university. Um, and after I'd been with him for about a year, I told my mum and <laughs> my mum's reaction was, oh, yeah, I am really on board with this. My best friend at university was gay and, you know, he, he was great. And, you know, I'm absolutely behind this. But she did say. I'm not sure if you should tell your dad. I don't know how he's going to react. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, I didn't initially, but also because there was no real, like, reason to. There was no impetus to, to like, take it any further than that. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, then I wanted to move in with uh, my boyfriend, um, which I did. And we still live together now, and it's great. Um, but as part of that, I obviously had to tell my dad. <laughs> and I was quite worried about it. But, you know, as with a lot of these things, it was unnecessary worry because he was supportive. You know, he was absolutely fine with it. I mean, he's not the sort of man who'll kind of, you know, <laughs> like, you know, part and crack open the party poppers and stuff. But, <laughs> you know, uh, he, he, you know, was absolutely fine and supportive and just a bit of a non-issue. Um, but I think that's kind of, you know, gay people when they kind of cross these boundaries. And I think, this is part of what we're trying to break down a bit with Racing Pride too, is people worry about how they're going to be received sometimes when they just don't really need to. Um, so, uh, you know, again, when I was talking to my parents about, oh, I'm going to do this thing called Racing Pride and it's going to be quite public. So, you know, you kind of need to know about it. I was worried how they were going to receive that, but they were absolutely on board with it straight away. Um, and I think 
um, you know, part of what Raising Pride does is it allows people to show that they would be supportive of somebody coming out around them. And that can make a huge difference. So, um, you know, uh, I'm kind of jumping the gun talking about this, but it's OK. You're around, proud of it. <laughs> when I like look around the pit lane now and there's like other cars on, you know, straight drivers running Racing Pride logos. It lets everyone around them know that it would be fine if they came out. And I think that's really powerful because I think a lot of gay people spend a lot of time worrying about how they're going to be received when actually they don't really need to. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. So I'm trying to as you're talking, I'm trying to figure out, you know, age because what's it's primary, <laughs> secondary, university. Yeah, I spent way too long at university, too, because uh, I did. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, let's let's explain though that PhD. you have exactly. <laughs> it's not like you're just wasting your time. You actually accomplished a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm now uh, I graduated from the PhD uh, in the start of 2018. I'm 28 now. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of medium age for a racing driver, I guess. I'm uh, you know out of the kind of first blushes of youth kind of at the stage, but, uh, you know, still uh, on the way up rather than over the hill, I like to think. <laughs> well, how old are you? So I'm 28. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're still good. <laughs> what did you get all your degrees in? So <laughs> completely unrelated to any of the other stuff, I do all my degrees in history, <laughs> um, which was just a, you know, a real interest of mine. Um, and yeah, I kept pursuing it. <laughs> Any like emphasis on certain parts of history or just overall history? Yeah. So, um, obviously as you go through, you specialize and, uh, European history of the early modern period. So, uh, between about 1500 and 1800s, um, cause I was interested in sort of, um, religious reformations and the discovery of the new world, you know, places like you are now, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, when Europe sort of started having all these outside influences on it. And yeah, so I just found it a really interesting period of history. <laughs> that You are an interesting man. <laughs> <laughs> I want to focus more on your auto racing. Yeah. When, um, as an auto racer, you have to, a lot of times at, at the level you're at and all the way up to the top, you're recruiting, you are getting your sponsors your sponsorship dictates if a team maybe even wants to to hire you on. Yeah. Right. So how does that work as <laughs> when you're, when you're not out yet, is there a fear that coming out, you will lose sponsors? You won't attract new ones. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it definitely is a worry and it is something that racing drivers, you know, do worry about. I mean, um, uh, uh, recently, um, Hurley Hayward, who's a kind of hero of U.S. racing, is a multiple Le Mans winner. Um, but he retired some time ago and he did a film last year in which he talked about how he never came out during his racing career because of this worry, because he thought he'd never get sponsorship if he if he came out. And um, that certainly was a big factor uh, in not wanting to come out because all of these things like just getting the drives, but also getting the sponsorship is so competitive. There's so many people sort of vying for that same position as you. You just don't want anything that you think might compromise it in any way. Um, so, you know, it certainly wasn't something that I was kind of publicly talking about even 12 months ago. Um, but 
uh, when I shifted from, I raced uh, single-seater cars, um, things called Formula Fords, um, which are kind of like baby F1 cars. They don't have wings on them, but they're, you know, one driver in a really small car. Mm-hmm. Um, I was racing them for a couple of years, and then I switched from doing that to doing sports cars for this year. And that kind of gave me a little bit of a kind of clean break opportunity because um, I was signing for a new team and I had different sponsor arrangements and things like that. So um, I kind of decided, right, well, you know, I'm getting on in my life and I'm more established in my relationship with my boyfriend. And, you know, this is who I want to be and I don't want to have to hide that. So uh, it just seemed like a moment at which I could do that. But of course, I was still like really worried about it. (laughs) And I remember um, when I sort of posted about it on Instagram for the first time, I put up a picture of uh, me and my boyfriend um and I remember my hands were like shaking and I was sweating um but uh yeah and and I mean <laughs> I guess time will tell going forward whether it's uh, <laughs> whether it has affected my prospects or not but uh yeah I just thought it was an important thing to do <laughs> how was was he a part of your racing life then before you come out or do you sort of keep him away from the track <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of, <laughs> it's a little bit strange because kind of yes and no. Um, so I met him at university uh, those years ago when I first went. Um, and he was really passionate about cars and racing too. And uh, when I first met him, I said, I want to be a racing driver. And he said, well, I want to be a race car designer. <laughs> um, so that was kind of a shared passion from the start. And he is, um, he's a designer for a Formula One team. So he uh, doesn't come to the track with me. Um, because we both kind (laughs) of, we don't really want that element of distraction in a way. Like I'm so focused and in the zone on my driving and it means that, you know, you become a little bit of a bad boyfriend to him when he's there because you're not really giving him much attention and equally like he likes to follow my racing online. He'll watch all the results live and, and like live streams of it and stuff. But, um, you know, he doesn't like being at the track actually watching me racing (laughs) because, you know, <laughs> racing can be dangerous. So, yeah, it's just... Well, yeah, I want to talk about safety in a little life. bit. So yeah, even sure. now, even now with you out, he does still doesn't come. No, so, I mean, he, he's come a couple of times, in fairness. Like, you know, it's not like he's banned from the track. It's just like he doesn't <laughs> tend to. Um, but, yeah, the the time he, uh, he came while I was racing the single-seaters, uh, he came to watch a race day. And part of why it was kind of awkward was because I wasn't out and uh, I certainly wasn't out to the team or anything. So he'd kind of be there in the garage, but we wouldn't show like any form of affection towards each other, which I think he found quite difficult. Um, with the current team, it's not like that. And he has come once or twice. But yeah, generally, generally he keeps it separate. <laughs> Sam Sam Stanley, he's a out former rugby player. He mentioned He's mentioned a few times where before he was out, he would bring his partner and he would always, you know, introduce him as an uncle or a, or a godfather or something like that. <laughs> Before you're out, when um, you said Edward, right? Yeah. Yeah. When when you bring Edward, are you just introduced, introducing him as friend or? Yeah, I used to just be like, oh, this is my friend. Ed. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I wouldn't sort of tell anyone but it's, it's quite easy to hide in a way as a gay relationship isn't it to go like oh this is my friend but um, yeah. people kind of go oh no further questions but <laughs> and I'm, I'm sorry friend is more yeah. american than than english but so then you you come out he still doesn't come that much and you're progressing in your in your driving yeah <laughs> 
yeah um so uh, and he's really excited for sort of you know where my career is going and the success I'm having at the moment um, I mean it's my first year in uh, sports cars as I said and we've had uh, six race meetings I've had six podium places um, two pole positions so it's going really well <laughs> uh, you're finding like a lot finish. of success it's been fun to watch you this year <laughs> yeah it's been it's been really good and it looks like I'm going to be vice champion at the end of the year so that's you know for my first year in in this type of car and I'm, I'm pretty pretty pumped about that um so yeah it's all all heading the right direction obviously my boyfriend's you know hugely supportive of that um just you know more away from the track than at it <laughs> in fact this is so your season's coming to an end soon you have one more race weekend right yeah yeah so i'm racing at Alton park which is uh one of my favorite tracks so uh you know i'm really looking forward to that um and uh yeah we're racing there early next month i watched some of the video that you posted on your youtube channel uh-huh. <laughs> and the de- the design of the car and how it but yeah watching it it was really interesting to watch the car as it goes through the track and i love how you split between in car and outside footage yeah <laughs> Yeah, but, it's uh, it, it's a really cool car in that respect. It does kind of, it's got a little bit of downforce, which kind of presses it down into the track, um, and it does ride quite low. But you still get that bit of, you know, it'll lean on the outside wheels as you turn three corners. Yeah. <laughs> what are some of the harder parts of driving this car? Um, so this car um, is very light um, for the amount of power that it's got. And it also has quite hard compound tires um, because they're trying to save costs. So you don't have to change tires all the time. So you have to go with something durable. But all of that means essentially that um, it's pretty tail happy. So um, <laughs> lots of power, not much weight, not a huge amount of mechanical grip from the tires. So um, you have to be really smooth with this car um, because like, it'll happily slide around, but sliding it around isn't quick. So you've got to be really, like sensitive in your inputs to it. Um, but also because it's got that like bit of bit of downforce on it. Um, if you can attack a corner, if you can enter the corner faster and carry more speed into it, it'll give you more grip. So there's a little bit of like a confidence leap of you've got to drive it fast for it to give you the grip to drive it fast. <laughs> so finding that balance must be yeah. big yeah, difficulty. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I was so surprised at how much movement there was. Yeah, it's, and then uh, I think I think the race I watched it was freaking windy. Oh yeah, oh that that race at, at Silverstone it was uh, literally while the UK was having like a storm, so it was uh, we were racing in a gale with like fifty mile an hour winds, um, <laughs> and so that obviously just like introduces a whole other variable that there's not much you can do about as a driver because like when the wind's gusty like that you can't rely on it being the same every lap. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously the thing about being able to push the edge is, you know, from the last lap, what's going to happen. And when it's windy like that, <laughs> you really can't tell if the wind's just going to come and grab the car and push you over the track and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just, <laughs> you do the best you can. You've got to live on your reactions to be able to correct it. <laughs> so when you go in, you know, multi-lap race and you go to turn one each lap, are you... Can you go in thinking that, okay, this is going to be the same as it was last time? Or are you every turn having to go, okay, well, what's the, the weather like now? And and what do I need to do differently? Yeah, so, like, I mean, you have these kind of references from all the laps you've done before where you know 
well, I can break about there and I can turn in on this line. And, you know, hitting the lines is the most important thing. Um, and you get that from all the previous laps. And then in terms of like how late you can break and particularly how early you can start getting on the power again, that's just something you've really got to feel with sort of all the sensors that you have in your body, um, particularly with your bum <laughs> to feel if the car's got enough grip. You know, you can feel through through your seat if the car's starting to step out at all. And that's how you sort of balance how you can put more throttle in. So you kind of, yeah, you have these references from previous laps of like if I break about there and if I turn in on this line, I know I'm going to make the corner. But where you can like start introducing the power again and stuff, that's all to do with the feel that you have um, and feeling how much grip there is in the car. Um, and that's sort of one of the main things that separates really good racing drivers from people who are just OK at driving a car, you know? <laughs> yeah. How many people are on your team? Is it do you have a, a few people to help you at race weekend or is it more of like an individual yeah, so uh, because I drive like for uh, for a team, um, there's uh, I mean usually they run a few different cars. Um, so uh, there's always me and at least one other um, car that they're running, um, and there's usually um, sort of three mechanics for two cars. Um, and if there are more cars, they have more mechanics about the place. Um, but. I always work directly with um, the guy who actually <laughs> owns the company, but he essentially acts as my race engineer. So I have one, one guy I work really closely with. He sort of talks to me after every session. We decide what we're going to do. We have a plan. We talk about what we need to do to the car. Um, and then he'll like tell the mechanics what needs to be done. Um, so, and that's quite typical, even to the top of like how race teams work in that um, you have your race engineer. who's like your number one point of contact. And then they tell the mechanics sort of what the plan is. <laughs> and then is it a race where you have pit stops or are you, you know, you go in with the full tank of gas and that's just what you have? Yeah, no, at the moment I'm in uh, sprint racing. So no, no pit stops. Uh, the race is uh, about 20 minutes long and uh, yeah, the car can just keep going that whole distance. <laughs> What's a typical race weekend like? Uh, so you have uh, a day of practice on the Friday um, where the sessions are sort of not officially timed. It's just for you and the team to gather information, get the car set up, um, do anything that you need to do for the car. So sometimes you need to run an engine in if you've changed some things. So you need to go easy on it for a bit. Sometimes you need to run in new brake pads. Sometimes you need to bring in new tires, things like that. So that's what you do on the Friday. And obviously, as a driver, you're also learning the track and getting all your reference points. Um, then Saturday, we tend to have a qualifying session um, and a race. And the qualifying session is kind of one way you've got to get your tactics right, because you all go out on track at the same time. So the track's pretty busy and you've got to try and get your fastest time in. Um, so kind of catching a clear bit of track is really important. Um, and then, yeah, we have the first race off your fastest time in qualifying. Um, and then the second day we have the second race, which is off your second fastest time in qualifying. Um, yeah. So you kind of, you have three days of, uh, of action, uh, one of just testing and then two race days. And then with the weekend being Friday through Sunday for racing, how does it, how do you do it with a, I imagine you have a full-time job. <laughs> and, you, uh, and you're still a racer 
Well, not really. So my working is uh, really uh, flexible, uh, which is kind of a deliberate thing to allow me to do this. So um, as well as the racing um, and, you know, the kind of what I do on that side of things, I also I make use of uh, the PhD and I still teach at Cambridge. Um, I teach undergrads there, um, but I uh, have a huge amount of flexibility with that. So the colleges give me students to teach. I arrange when I'm going to see them um, and I can kind of make sure it all fits around my racing. So, yeah, I'm really lucky that I have that kind of, you know, flexibility in my job. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then being a gay racer, I mean, and then being uh, a teacher at, at Cambridge, I imagine you're able to help influence younger people who maybe never knew of a gay person or or whatever, able to help them. Yeah, I mean, you this are. is like yeah i mean this is a big part of why i wanted to to come out within motorsport and to get involved with racing pride was because um when i was younger i didn't have anyone that i could see as like an example particularly within motorsport i mean also just generally within my day-to-day life but um yeah back when i was karting and stuff and i had like you know little bits of homophobia like you know people sort of calling names and things like that um i didn't have any sort of example that i could be like ah well that guy's successful in this field and so it's clearly fine so yeah i mean i like to think and hope that people who are younger than me or you know who haven't done as much racing as me or people who are at university and you know aspire to getting their phd and stuff they can look at you and just be like oh right well here is an example of someone who's done it. <laughs> that That's really impressive just to see who you are and, and what you do. And you've accomplished so much at 28. Um, before <laughs> well, we move you. on to, before we move on to racing pride though, I, I do want to touch on safety. You, you mentioned it once two weeks ago or three weeks ago now at the Belgium Grand Prix, an F2 racer died. Yeah. So safety is obviously something that as a fan myself, watching races each weekend you can sort of forget about you forget that accidents can happen and and death while rare it can happen but injuries happen more than than uh than you would think how do you safety is obviously taken seriously at all levels of racing yeah do you ever go in though on a race weekend and is it ever I, I don't don't know how to ask this, but do you ever like forget about like what you're doing is dangerous? That <laughs> yeah, you, you bad totally can do, happen? yeah. I mean like so there are reminders all over the place. Like, you know, when you turn up to a race meeting, the first thing you've got to do is go to race control and uh, we call it signing on. You sign a declaration that says, I understand motorsport is dangerous. Um, you know, you're basically saying you're not gonna sue anyone if you die um well your family aren't going to see them oh, yeah. you um, but um yeah and like you know in the holding area for going out on track there's always signs saying motorsport is dangerous etc but um yeah and we do take safety seriously you know i make sure i've got all the right kit all the best kit um i trust the team 100 percent to you know go over the car make sure absolutely nothing's wrong with that and then before race day you have Uh, something called scrutineering where um, someone who's expert at it will go over all the important safety aspects of the car. So making sure everything's attached as firmly as it should be, making sure there's nothing that's, you know, potentially dangerous and it's entirely safety scrutineering. It's not 
at that stage it's not about whether the car conforms to the regulations it's just like do your brakes work as they should like do all your safety lights work as they should things like that um so that's all really good and like obviously everyone does everything they can to make it as safe as possible um and yeah i mean we all know motorsport can be dangerous and it was very difficult for me and for everyone involved in motorsport to see what happened to uh hubert um the driver who died um and yeah it's, it's really tough but I mean, to tell the honest truth, I'm not just trying to sound macho, but when you when you drive the car, you do not think about it at all. It just never crosses your mind um, that there's a danger element to this because you just you just think about the race and and you think about you know the risk of damaging your car. So um, you know, heading into the first corner. I mean, my latest YouTube video shows like two other cars squeezing me into the first corner. And there I was thinking, ah, don't, you know, <laughs> don't come across the front because I was worried about, you know, getting damage on the front end of my car at the start of the race. But I wasn't thinking because we'll have a crash and we'll go into the barriers. It was just all you think about is the race and how to maximize your race, um, possibly because motorsport's so like full on and all your senses are so lit up with what you're doing. There just isn't time to think about that kind of thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. And usually, I mean, like you mentioned, you're you're thinking about the car and maybe thinking about the money to to fix the damaged car. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really lucky that because I'm because I'm the team's driver because I'm the works driver. They just they they fix it for me. They take care of that. But you do have a little bit of pity on them too, because obviously all parts of the car are expensive, and you do feel bad if you've broken expensive stuff. I bet. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. Before I let you go, I want to talk about obviously racing pride. You are one of the founders. What led you to co-found this organization? Yeah. And so, what? It, and first of all, explain what racing pride is. Yeah, racing pride is uh, really the first attempt that there's been in motorsport at all to promote um, LGBTQ plus competitors. Um, to promote visibility and inclusivity within motorsports. So other sports here in the UK, and I strongly suspect uh, in the US as well, have their kind of various pride-based campaigns and visibility campaigns. But there was nothing like that at all in motorsport uh, in the UK before we did this. So um, we've got uh, driver ambassadors who are obviously racing drivers who are LGBTQ plus um, to be sort of role models for competitors. We've also got officials, uh, marshals, people involved in the media. So we're really trying to get people from sort of all elements of motorsport together um, in order to show that you can be successful in all kind of avenues of motorsport um, from, you know, being LGBTQ plus. Um, and we've got some race series on board um, to help us promote it and stuff. Um, but yeah, it it, um, it started out when I uh, when I came out uh, publicly in relation to my racing. You know, put posts on my official sort of racing social media and site uh, about it. Um, a guy called uh, John Holmes, who uh, works for Sky Sports um, mm -hmm. and uh, founded uh, an LGBT. Uh, I mean, you've had him on the podcast, so you know all this <laughs> LGBT. <laughs> oh yeah, we talk. Uh, in fact, group. we were talking this morning, so. Yeah, uh, so you know him. He he got in touch with me, um, and he said, uh, you know, it's it's great to see you come out. And I was like, oh, it's so cool you're following me. And I was like, um, you know, do you know of anything going on about 
representation in motorsport and he said well I don't but I do know another guy who asked me if I knew anything going on in, in motorsport so he linked me up with um, a guy called Chris Sharp who is my co-founder he's a motorsport journalist um, and uh, yeah sort of um, the two of us played around with some ideas got the kind of concept for something that link up the motorsport industry um, and then John sort of said well this seems like a really cool idea how about I introduce you to my contacts at Stonewall UK um, and so we went to London had a meeting talked to Stonewall um, and then uh, it just kind of grew from there but uh, having sort of that strong basis was really great and over the next couple of months we added to the mix having not only Stonewall, but also Sky through John and uh, Autosport through Chris's contacts. Um, and we got uh, our initial launch partners on board. So a big motorsport club in the UK called 750 Motor Club and uh, Team Parker Racing as well. He raced in a number of different series. Um, yeah. And so we just kind of had it all lined up. And then in June, Pride Month, we went for the big launch. <laughs> and before we continue, I just want to say at this time that I am a big fan of John. I think what John has done since coming out and with sports media LGBT has been impressive. And hearing his little part in Racing Pride has just been so cool to hear. Yeah, but he's, going... uh, he's just so helpful. You know, he, he's just done everything he can to help us the whole way along. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's yeah, fantastic. He's so freaking nice. And I'm looking forward to meeting him when I go back to London in March. But I want to ask you, when you were when you were closeted and you were racing, your fear was probably that there weren't many people like you who yeah, were I didn't LGBT. Know. I didn't know of anyone, and that was the thing. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> when you see. when you announce Racing Pride, you and the group of people that are involved, were you surprised to hear so many people from all levels of the sport, from media to workers with teams to to racers were you surprised to hear so many people come out and talk to you yeah definitely um i mean it was like <laughs> i mean even if racing pride hasn't helped anybody else and i really hope it has it helped me a lot because it was suddenly you know i remember saying uh um to to my family at the first meeting i did after launching it i just felt so much more at home at the racetrack because even at that meeting i knew one of the commentators was a media ambassador for us. I knew that the club was supportive of what we were doing. And, you know, it's been just an amazing experience over the last few months going to racetracks and seeing like marshals who were part of Racing Pride and, and media people. And I didn't know there were so many people about the place. And that's largely because they also felt really uncomfortable to put themselves forward to talk about it. You know, we were all kind of just being like, Oh, well, I'm probably the only one, you know, so, um, and, uh, yeah. And so that's just been amazing to see that there are so many, uh, people within motorsport and more importantly too, there are so many, uh, allies within motorsport, you know, it's got this image, as I say, a hangover from sort of older advertising imagery, the macho racing driver. Um, but actually these days, most people in motorsport are good, tolerant, inclusive people. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's been fantastic to see, you know, on the grid that I race on, almost all of the competitors have voluntarily put Racing Pride stickers on their cars and stuff to say, yeah, we're supportive of what you're doing. Um, so that's been fantastic, too. <laughs> I love that. Do you think coming out has helped possible sponsorship for you? 
<laughs> As I mean, opposed kinda, to hurt? I, I mean, it's, it's too early to say. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I really hope that, uh, you know, potential sponsors would look at what we're doing with Racing Pride and would say, look, that's a really worthwhile thing to be doing and it aligns with our values too. And we believe in our businesses and inclusivity. And so we want to help people who are promoting inclusivity through sport. So absolutely, I want to believe that will be the case. Um, and I guess we'll just have to have to see, <laughs> uh, see how that goes. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. I have one final question for you. It's the question I ask every guest. If you can go back in time and ask your 12-year-old self, or tell your 12-year-old self something to help you with your own sexuality, to come to terms with who you are, what do you think that one thing would be to help you? Mm, interesting. <laughs> I probably should have thought about this in advance, shouldn't I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think just the, 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 the thing I want to tell myself is even if you can't see people around you now who you can identify with, you are going to come across people in your life who share this, who are gay too, and people who are going to love you for that and who are going to help you. So, you know, even if you can't see them now, these people are out there and will be out there and you'll meet them and it'll be great. <laughs> All right, that's cool. And it, honestly, it's, that's how it's worked for you, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was <laughs> incredibly lucky to find people that university who uh you know were uh so supportive and indeed to find my partner at <laughs> university and yeah. yeah it's been um you know i'd say i partly came out because i believed that the people around me in racing at the time were going to be supportive um but they absolutely have proven to be you know my team has been absolutely great about it cool well richard i don't want to take up much more of your time so i'm gonna let you go i just want to thank you again for coming on and let me talk with you for the last hour <laughs> oh it's been great it's been good fun <laughs> I want to take this time to th once again thank Richard for being a guest on my podcast. It was a lot of fun talking with him um, to hear his stories, his experience, and see where he hopes to take Racing Pride UK in the future. Uh, tune in next week when my guest is an employee of the New Jersey Devils. His name is Joe Altano, and we talk about his education. We talk about the VMAs that were recently held in New Jersey, as well as the upcoming hockey season. I hope you come back and listen to my next episode with Joe. Until next week, though, take care.